This show is a long-form discussion with fans, readers, scholars, and obsessives about all the works of Ursula K. Le Guin, one episode at a time. Every single piece of her work is up for grabs, from her novels to her poetry to her essays. We're starting season one with the fantasy classic, A Wizard of Earthsea. I hope you enjoy the show. And here we are, uh, the Left Hand of the Gwen uh, inaugural episode. I am very happy to be here. I have uh, two very wonderful people, and I'm saying that for meeting them just now for the first time. Uh, Twitter acquaintances is what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, but now we're officially, I'll say, friends until they uh, do something untoward. Uh, <laughs> first, uh, we'll have Simon. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Simon McNeil. I'm an art critic and uh, an author. I live in Prince Edward Island, Canada, on a uh, small uh, permacultural mixed fruit farm. And um, I, uh, I have written one book that was published by Brainlag uh, called The Black Trillion, which was uh, kind of playing with Cusiatropes in Toronto. And other than that, most of my work has been essay writing about uh, literature and film for the most part. Awesome. And James? Uh, James Gifford. I'm coming in from Vancouver, British Columbia, so on the opposite side of the continent and country. <laughs> uh, I'm a professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University and uh, run Fairleigh Dickinson University Press, uh, and uh, I do a little, a little writing on the side as well. That's awesome. And of course, everybody probably knows me for the intro, but Kyle Winkler, I'm a professor at Kent State University at Tuscarawas. I teach writing and rhetoric, and I'm also uh, a writer as well. Um, But we're all here because uh, I can't shake Ursula K. Le Guin. uh, And not that I tried, but, um, and I thought, if we're going to do a show, if I'm going to do, it's going to happen. It's going to have to have a Wizard of Earthsea be the first thing to talk about. And I had just tweeted something yesterday, and I, I thought, if you're somebody who reads Le Guin's fantasy and not her SF, right, or, or it could be vice versa, even, what is wrong with you? Why are you not doing both? Um, and I have to admit, after finishing uh, this again uh, yesterday, or rather early this morning, I realized that this might be one of the best fantasy novels I've ever read. Not that I'm the most well-read fantasy reader ever, but I've read my share, and I still can't think that this is uh, anything that is, uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing better than that, to be, to be honest with you. So um, first off, I want to ask, that's just my little take on this. I want to ask, uh, when did you first read Le Guin, and when did you first read A Wizard of Earthsea? So I, I've been reading Le Guin for back into my childhood. I'm not certain exactly when the first time I read her was, but she was also the first person who I ever wrote, read a full like novel length work in a single sitting. Um, I was I had to spend a day at the library because it was a professional development day. My mother was a college teacher, and so I I went into the library and I kind of just browsed around for what fantasy they had. It was a copy of the Tombs of Achuan there, and I was like, "Well, this looks kind of interesting." There was maps in the front, which I was like, so I I sat down and I read it in a single go, and. That may not have been my first exposure to Le Guin, but it was it was really what kind of hooked me on her as an author. So maps, maps really do it for you. Maps mm-hmm. drawn by her, by the way. Yeah. yeah really? Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, that's her. That's her. So far as I, I mean, everything I've ever read. James, do you can you confirm or or disconfirm that? I think that's true. The the map. I know the new uh, Charles Vess edition illustrated has has a copy of her map. The original map is lost, so it's her copy of her original map. Is that it? There we are. But she did point out that many of the um, uh, many of the editions that were done had illustrators who copied and improved her mm. map. Uh, so it depends on which edition you have. I like hers. 
I like hers. Yeah. I like her handwriting. I like uh, she's got these little sort of small flourishes at the end, wise and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it was her old website too. She had uh, the map of Earthsea as the background for her website, not not the Hainish books, but Earthsea was what she put up there. Yeah, I like those. The Hainish one's like a circle, isn't it? In a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, James, what about you? Um, different from Simon. Uh, I, I'm very first gen, uh, first gen high school. Um, so my uh, my first encounter with Le Guin is kind of lost the sands of memory uh, or sands of time. Um, I first ran into her books in a, a tiny used bookstore in the little town I grew up in. And, and I don't really remember reading them, which meant that I probably didn't understand them or read them just for the plot. Uh, at the time. And then I went on to university where we weren't supposed to read fantasy. And uh, I'd say my real first rebirth as a reader uh, through Le Guin was when uh, I was teaching and I picked up um, an anthology that included Xi'an Names Them, which got me thinking back to, I thought I read a fantasy novel that had a lot to do with naming. And I went back and read it, and, and it's the same thing for a lot of books I pick up and realize, oh, drat, this was literature the whole time, and I hadn't realized it. <laughs> uh, and it was one of those things floating around that got me later on to come back academically to think about fantasy in a, a different way. I came to Le Guin late as well, and A Wizard of Earthsea was the first thing I read fully of hers. I know I'd read The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas at some point. I don't know when. But it was in the back of my head. And it wasn't until later when I started, uh, I had stopped writing fiction for a long time and came back. And I was sort of exclusively working on fantasy and science fiction and speculative writing. And, you know, I was in, I was doing graduate work and you're around people who know all that. And they just sort of like, you know, this is what bubbles up. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what it was. Maybe I was just the things I was reading at the time. But I went out and got a copy and. Mine's marked 2015 at the bottom, so that was probably when I read it. And the thing, the thing that struck me about it, and James, I had asked you about this earlier, was it's only 184 pages. It's, its slimness is the thing that is so impressive to me. And I want, maybe we'll start there. Let's talk about this first. Is What, what does the size of the book... <laughs> say to you about her ability to craft i really hate the word world building but to craft a world do you know what i mean like yeah. the her the granularity she has without giving all of the details um i don't know what else to say about that other than than what i just said so if either of you want to take that maybe james first then simon i guess Okay, I, I have plentiful opinions on that. Yeah. Uh, there's, I mean, Le Guin is, is um, more learned and more knowledgeable and so forth than, than I think the prose immediately conjures up. Uh, and I'm thinking, like, the, the book is dedicated to her brothers. All three of them are, are university professors by that point in time, I believe. Um, she's left her, her PhD at um, uh, Harvard is what we'd call it now uh and 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 yet the prose is so spare um it's almost a hemingway-esque quality to it and in some respects it feels like hemingway's vignettes from in our time when he's trying to figure out okay i'm spending all my time around joyce i'm spending all my time around gertrude stein what am i going to do for my own experimental prose and he decides on this thing where you don't see inside thoughts. Those aren't present, but everything is still manifest. It's all there, but you only see the tiny portions of it. Um, and Le Guin kind of does that too. We've got this enormous sea in the map. We have these tiny little islands poking out, and the islands are what we have for the book. So it might be short. It might be almost novella length, but there's a, a complexity and a richness in that um, seemingly very simple tale. And to my mind, that's why it is short in comparison, especially to her, her later Hainish novels that could be quite long. Um, you know, not like today's Mammoth Beasts, but uh, her early novels were quite short. But I think Wizard of Earthsea really stands out for me because of how much is into that uh, small amount of text and those seemingly simple sentences, the complexity that's still wrapped up in them. It's interesting that you 
mentioned Hemingway as a sort of, I don't know if it was a direct comparison, but just the sort of idea of what is she going to do when she sits down to write in this prose style, which I find not entirely archaic. It's not like stylistically archaic, but she does mess with syntax in certain ways to sort of give you a different feel. Um, It doesn't sound like late 60s prose. It also doesn't sound like the sort of faux uh, Tolkien-esque type, at least to me anyway. Maybe somebody who's a much more like a Tolkien scholar would be able to say, no, 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 she's totally uh, doing X, Y, and Z. But to me, um, it's very poetic. Her background as a poet or her being a poet, I think, is very much in the forefront of this book. There's just things I was reading this time around. I was just like, oof, leveled by how beautiful the prose is. Her vocabulary, the things that she decides to put in and doesn't put in. Um, I'm, we can, we'll keep moving. I, I want to ask, Simon, what do you think with regard to the oh, size? I, I, I think I completely agree. I'm, and especially um, on how her training as a poet helps her create some parsimony in her text i think like especially when she's able to use like really good turns of metaphor like um when when ogayan is is talking to ged about a lifespan and 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 uses that river metaphor for it um i find that that really kind of leans into the a a kind of a lyrical sort of a style an almost verse like feeling to how how she creates voice um i thought i thought it was good for especially for this story lending in an almost a kind of a mythic or oral tradition sort of a sense like if i believe there is a bit that suggests it is an oral story at the end that's been documented later is there not yeah it's yes. at the very yeah. end it's that last page yeah it says, um but in the dead of and the deed of ged nothing is mm-hmm. told of that voyage nor of ged's meeting with the shadow before ever he sailed the dragon's run unscathed and brought back the ring of Aerith Ackby from the tomb of Achuan to Havnor, or came at last to Roke once more as archmage of all the islands of the world. And the, the th- two things we should do, A, that is the last sentence of the book, but that's not a spoiler, and there are no, I'm not, mm-hmm. people can be spoilery in this. Uh, <laughs> this is for people I've assumed have already read it, but we will probably give a capsule summary of the book here in a second. Is that, I don't think she knew she was going to immediately write a sequel to this. Uh, if she did, there's so many things in here that she's alluding to that come along later, or that as she, when she was further down the road, decided to go back and use, like mentioning Celador, which will come back into Hanu, or, you know, um, the whole, obviously the next book, right? You know, the whole the Ged's quest that he goes on in the second book. Um, yeah, why don't we, before we, before we spin back around to, to this, let's just say maybe real quickly, <laughs> I'm assuming everybody who's listening to this has probably read this book or knows about this book, but let's just say what this book is about very quickly, right? In a couple of sentences to the best of our ability. Does anybody want to venture that? Anybody want to put that on the table? How to be in the world. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) It is how to be in the world. I guess I'm thinking more of like a bless me father friends have sent Amazon summary. Uh, I guess what I mean by that is something like, um, it takes place in a world called Earthsea, which is m- basically an, ar- an archipelago, right? It's a, it's a very large series of islands that stretch. Um, we don't know. There's a part in the book at the end where, where um, Ged asked Vetch if there's anything on the other side of the world. And it's sort of like, I've always wondered, are we looking at one side of a globe as opposed to the entire globe? I don't know. Um, I kind of like that. I don't know. Um, so. It starts off with a young boy who lives on an island called Gaunt. His name is Dooney. I believe that's probably how you pronounce it. Um, and he accidentally, um, through his um, a relative, an aunt, who's sort of a, I don't know, what would you call it, a town witch. She knows a couple basic yeah. spells. He learns how to uh, gather goats, how to get a goat off top of a house. And from there, he, he has this uh, ability to rather to do basic spell weaving and comes under, it's, it is a Bildungsroman. He comes under the, uh, the, the guidance of a, of a mage. Um, you say Ogion or Ogion. I've heard Ogion. We'll go with whatever. Ogion. 
we'll, we'll yeah. yeah we'll 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 use what we can but we know it's ged don't say jed right we know that okay and uh from there it is it is just uh it's a journey it's a quest of him learning going to a school for mages um on roke an island called roke and then after that um something happens at roke he loose he loosens or unloosed a shadow uh what that might be i'm sure we could spend another hour and a half to two hours talking about <laughs> uh but the rest of the book is about him pursuing this shadow because if it was to not be um, confronted and tamed or controlled i won't say destroyed uh integrated probably is a better word then it could possibly do lots of damage to the greater world um that's the impression that i get when i read the book and about you so did I leave anything out that's super important there? I'd only say that that's mostly summarized in the little epigraph on the very first page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think so there's no probably... spoilers. No, there's no spoilers. That's good. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So, so that's it. But, and, but through what we get there is he starts off as Dooney. He's named Sparrowhawk by Ogion the Mage. Uh, and the, but his real name, his true name is Ged. And what's great is that the narrator refers to him as Ged all the time. But then in the book, someone will say Sparrowhawk, if it's someone who doesn't know his, his true name. So you have this whole balance of, of different names going on, who knows what, where, when, and everything like that. Uh, that was another aspect of this book that I, I love, the whole naming thing, which is what uh, everybody always sort of refers to again and again. With the, with the size of this book, the thing I kept coming back to, and I, maybe just because... Um, one of the things I constantly hear about in fantasy is where, where is um, where is Patrick Rothfuss's third King Killer book, right? The Doors of Stone or something like that. I think that's what the title is. And the idea there is that that book is probably going to be at what fifteen hundred pages or something. It's it's the kind of thing that if you dropped it from a, a decent height, you'd you'd brain someone. And so, I guess I just wonder what the impetus is to try to fill up as many pages as possible in a fantasy book but what she, what she did was she said no i'm not going to do that um but even then i can't think of a fantasy novel that was you know a thousand pages um you were trying to you i think james you were saying that the that notion of a big fat fantasy book wasn't coming along until some ways later after this yeah i think it would be in the 80s 80s yeah i mean so, there were exceptions like, yeah, you, got, you got Mervyn Peak. Mervyn Peak put a, a right. few door stoppers um, for the few people who read him. The Gormenghast um, books, yeah, yeah, those. Yeah. Um, um, he was also a really good artist. His visual art yeah. was amazing. Um, but but yeah, no, for the most part, uh, I, I mean, coming out of pulps, a lot of fantasies were quite short and contained, right? Yes. Yes, I was saying online it was '77 uh, when Del Rey launched and and lester del rey had his i don't know if it was 1977 when he made it but he, he required authors have a 100,000 word minimum uh, and Le Guin obviously did not face that requirement and i don't think it would have stylistically suited her either no and we know it's funny is and i'll probably get to this when i talk about left hand and we talk about dispossessed but um sometimes those books as much i love those books in fact i would say the dispossessed is probably one of my favorite books if not my favorite Le Guin book even though it doesn't have my my favorite writing in it it's one of those weird things but there's actually a lot of stuff in that book that i don't think necessarily needs to be there like even her longer books i feel like are still there's still little things that she probably could have taken out that wouldn't have been necessarily detrimental to the overall project of her of her of the book but this um yeah these i don't know i you wouldn't have wanted it to be any longer uh, or shorter to be perfectly honest with you um what is it that appeals to you about this book necessarily? What is it like when I asked, I said, who wants to talk about it? And you both jumped up and were like, hey, me, I'm here. I can do this. Hi, hi internet friend. Let's do this. Like, what was it about when I said Wizard of Earthsea, you went, I have to be there for this? I think a lot of it is that it's sitting at the intersection of a lot of my interests. So um, I've got a, a lifelong kind of, connection to Taoism. I, I, another library find of mine that was an early library find, I have a lot of those stories, um, was a copy of the Tao Te Ching, which I, I picked up 
one night and just started reading and I'd never seen anything like it before and really didn't know what to make of it. Um, and so I read the whole thing. Um, and that kind of got me going on philosophy, which has been a bit of a lifelong obsession of mine ever since. And then to see that kind of circle around some of the phenomenological, ontological sort of questions that that my faves like Sartre got into with, with the Wizard of Earthsea, and to have that being done in this nice, compact fantasy novel, that it's, it's like checking all the boxes, like check, 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 all in a row. So you, you appreciate the philosophical background of the book, really? Oh, yes. And what would you, and you referenced the Tao Ching, you'd say that's pretty much it? Well, when I was looking at this book earlier this year, um, I kind of put the Tao Te Ching into communication with with Sartre and and some of Sartre's more Heideggerian moments, and 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 kind of looked at how being arises through a process of difference, which the name is used to enunciate, right? And and I, I thought that there was some really interesting stuff happening there to 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 look at ways to contain being uh, like within the factistic of life um that i like for instance how she broke campbell's model okay so for people who might not follow all the things you just said because there's a couple things some heideggerian right terms, right, right right especially like facticity why don't you mm. tell us a little bit about first capsule summary what campbell's model Okay, so so when I'm talking about Campbell's model, I'm talking about what people usually call the hero's journey. Right. I I I I've got some gripes with it, so I I often try to resituate it with the person who came up with it. Um, there's this very cyclical structure that that Campbell proposed that stories take, and that he tried to present as being this this kind of universal monomythic structure, right? So that if you look at how people tell stories about themselves and about their world it can be mapped onto this very predictable pattern um and Le Guin actually kind of breaks that a little bit quite quite obviously and deliberately in this book like one element of the hero's journey that's very important to the conclusion of the action is the return home and get does that in the middle of the book and then leaves again mm-hmm. Um, and so, so those sorts of those, the, her playing with the story structure there is something that really fascinates me. In this book. Yeah, when he returns home, it's as mm-hmm. a, it's as a failure. Mm-hmm, exactly. He doesn't. He doesn't. He he returns home changed. Mm-hmm. He returns home as a hawk, but he's also failed, and he has yeah. to be brought back, and then he sets out again. There is a weird doubling there. Yeah, I like. Yeah. I uh, I don't. I know people are always thinking about the Kimbellian model about story structure, which I think Dan Harmon has also came up with like a story circle type thing. I've seen that before. Dan Harmon, who is the showrunner and creator of Community and uh, was it Rick and Morty? Is that right too? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that type of uh, called, called a, well, I would... (laughs) The call to adventure. It is. I don't. I don't, I say this, and I don't. No offense, Canadians, but like this is sort of like Jordan Peterson's made this famous again, hasn't he? With the he whole has. like, yeah, call to adventure stuff. Okay, so, <sighs> but the the name that shall not be mentioned ever again. Okay, so <laughs> in any case, um, yeah, no, that's fascinating, James. What about you? Um, I mean, it's tempting just to respond to Simon's comments. No, but, please do. Uh, Go ahead. Um, I, I like the book very much because of the same things. And I'm, I'm old enough to have gone to grad school and had a class in archetypal criticism, um, which was before my return to Le Guin. That was in my MA. Uh, so I had all those things in mind when I went back to these books. Was it very and, Northrop Fry? Yes. Stoked? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, it was through California State, but um, uh, lots of Northrop Fry, lots of uh, gestures to Campbell and Young. And... Um, uh, partly the reason why we walk away from that very successful model, uh, which still gets used in, in movie productions and book writing today, is because its obsession with finding sameness means that it's not useful or it has very little utility for valuing genuine difference. And Le Guin has no hand with that whatsoever. So it's 1968. It's the height of all of this kind of thinking. And yet it's difficult to look at her hero's journey if you want to use the word in this book without it being a radical version of it because difference is front and center 
uh, sameness is not going to be valued, even the conclusion of the book, uh, the valuing and embracing of difference is, is what becomes unifying rather than a discovery of kinship or sameness, uh, the reduction of, say, different cultural traditions to being the same thing. Um, but what really grabbed me in the novels is probably what I wrote about, uh, if I can do plugs for my own book, A Modernist Fantasy, um, which is the political dimension. I mean, you mentioned The Dispossessed as being your favorite book uh, by Le Guin, even if it doesn't have your favorite writing. And I'd, I'd agree with that. But I'd also say, I think in some respects, Earthsea is more radical than The Dispossessed. I'm willing to be convinced of that. I want to be convinced of that. I mean, well, no, I am. I think I already am. I think this this most recent reading is something where I was I would stop, you know. Other than the fact that I had two kids and a job, I would have probably read this in a day. But it, I'm just glad it took me longer than that to sort of think. I would read a chapter and I'd think on it, and I'd get the the ener- if you want to call it the entertainment value from it, and then I would sort of think about what she was doing there, right? What the characters are doing, what the language that she's using, what the I, I dare I, I don't like uh, veridical metaphors about meaning because my students are always trying to ask about what's the deeper meaning here. I'm like, don't what deeper meaning? Just like look at the thing, like what's going on. But I it's hard not to think about um, how, as you say, radical the story and the characters and what's going on here. I think one of the things that stuck out to me, and maybe I'll mention this and see what you both think is um, the dragon of, of Pendor. When Ged is on a very small island, sort of doing his first full-time position as a mage in Lotorning, I think is the name of the island. And these people are um, threatened by the dragon of Pendor, which is some ways to the west. And as he's he's afraid because he's going to be pursued by the shadow that he's loosened earlier. Um, and he's still in a fear mode, right? He has not yet um, taken the advice of his um, mentor and decided to turn and face the shadow. And so he decides what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out. First off, I'm not going to face the shadow. I'm going to go face the dragon. That's the hilarious part. The thing that is explicitly dangerous right? I'm going to go get that first. He goes out and tries to take care of this, tries to head this off at the pass because he knows he can't stay on this island. But if he doesn't, if he leaves and doesn't take care of the dragon, he's not doing his duty. So (laughs) people think it's a suicide mission and he goes off to the island to go deal with it. And he does. He he deals with it in a very, I'd say, academic way, scholastic way. He wins this match with this dragon because he read a book, which I loved. He doesn't pull um a sword per se he doesn't fire anything at it he doesn't you know what i mean there's nothing that seems overtly violent is that he wins this match with what is probably considered one of the deadliest creatures on that planet through book learning would you agree with that yes i don't know is that that radical enough or not i don't know it seems radical to me i don't know well, there's more to it too. I mean, in that yeah. moment, the dragon offers him the the temptation from on high. It's it's like he's having the world spread out beneath him. And uh, if you don't call my name or ask me not to go and and torch and eat all these people, uh, I can yeah. give you the information to save you. And Ged turns it down because it's not his duty. It's not his obligation to the community. Does that read biblical to you? I almost thought you were going to say the part in the Bible. Where oh Christ yes, is that, yeah, okay, yeah, absolutely. I would read that as biblical. Yeah, uh, you know, throw in the whole harmonium. <laughs> with this book really (laughs) i i think that it's really important to pair this though with his inability to save the fisherman's child um so right before he goes off to kill the dragon this is what kind of alerts alerts his shadow that he's around there he he tries to bring a kid who's dying of a fever back from the brink of death Mm -hmm. and and goes right to the boundaries of death um in a kind of a spirit journey and then fails and comes back and and all of a sudden knows not only has he um not only has he not defeated death but his his own death is now coming closer to him um and he goes and he kills a lot of dragons before he has his little 
um, conversation with the last one because there's all those younger drakes right. that he like rips out of the sky and he just pulls them down one after the other. And I think that there's there, this is kind of his first encounter as an adult with kind of understanding from two perspectives what what it is like what death is like how it feels to be in the presence of death and how it feels to be the cause of death and i think that putting that episode early in the story is kind of important for 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 building that moral development of 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 ged to to get to the point where he's able to integrate that he's got both those potentials within him there's no conquest of death no mm. Unlike most fantasy novels, there's it's even in the opening little passage only in dying life. Mm -hmm. uh, we we yeah. don't get to conquer the other. Do you do you, I have that here? Do you have that? I can read. That. I do. Yes. You go ahead go and read it. that. Oh, okay. Um, it's from the creation of Ea. 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 I'm guessing from the accent, Ea? but sure. Mm -hmm. uh, only in silence the word. Only in dark the light. Only in dying life, bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. And that becomes a lot more potent to me at the end of the book when I go back and I reread it again. It's the whole and novel. It's the whole thing. It's great. And, you know, when a, I, I remember um, for a long time, I, I, I write horror. Um, that's not my primary genre, but that's what I've published most in. And one of the things that um, I think about when I think about terrifying scenes is the scene where he chases the boy who's dying. And there's this beautiful moment where um, Ged is asked to, to assess this boy's health. And he does, and he realizes immediately that this boy is too far gone. And the advice that he remembers is that um, for someone who you can save, you should do everything you can. But for those you can't, you should leave them to die in peace. Something to that effect. Um, but he's too scared to do that in front of this, this fisherman. Um, why do you think that, like, what is that? He knows what he needs to do. He knows what he needs to do. He should let the boy die peacefully because he knows he can't do anything for him. But in an almost, would you call it a moment of pride or fear? Or I don't know what emotion he, he attaches to this because he doesn't want to let these people down. And he's like, he, he decides he's going to put everything he has into this. It almost seems like a suicide mission because there's a moment there where he chases the boy into the dry land where death is, like you say, mm -hmm. um, where he sees the low wall, which that is the, emblematic Leguinian symbol for me, the low wall made of stone. Yes, indeed. We can talk, we can talk about yeah. more, that more later. Why do you think he decides to, to, to do this? He knows what he needs to do, but he does the opposite anyway. That's a whole mix of emotions, though, isn't it? It's, it's, it is pride. He certainly has a lot of that. But it's, it's also love. Like, the, right. she spends a fair bit of time talking about the relationship he builds with this fisherman and, and, and the work that they do him with, with putting charms on the fisherman's boat, the fisherman teaching him how to sail without using magic, which is something he'll need to learn later anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I think this is one of the times that he starts to learn how hard it is to, to pick out just one emotion and say, well, it was this. And that, that really, it's all these different things kind of coming in all together that, that can push you in these different directions. And sometimes you gotta, sometimes you gotta learn how to ride that. Um, but I mean, yeah, the, that bit, that bit you just read there is pretty close to some of the material straight out of her translation of the Tao Te Ching. So, mm. so that, that sense of sometimes you have to ride it. Sometimes, you know, you've got to do without doing is, is <laughs> it's pretty central there. Right. Absolutely. Phrase she likes to repeat, too. Mm -hmm. Do without doing? Yeah. Yeah. Or to choose yeah. inaction as a pathway. Yeah, mm -hmm. but also is inherently paradoxical to some degree, too. Mm -hmm. Right? To me, it seems that way. I don't know. Simon, is, is the, when I think of the Tao Te Ching, I think of paradox, but perhaps that's <laughs> not the way to think of it. I don't know. 
I mean, Lao Tzu loves himself a paradox. Um, but, but like, okay, so I, I pulled this quote actually from her translation because she, she really worked this bit. It's quite different from other translations. Would you recommend her translation? Do you think she Absolutely. Did a- yeah, okay. Yes. Um, so here, I just, I marked it in both. Um, I'm older, this is a more traditional translation. And then I've also got her for the, the same verse. Um, so in, in the traditional, these three, because they cannot be further scrutinized, blend into one. Its rising brings no light, its sinking no darkness. Endless, the series of things without name, on the way back to where there is nothing. Um, and so then on her version, you get instead, triply undifferentiated, it merges into oneness. Not bright above, not dark below. Never, oh, never can it be named. It reverts, it returns to unbeing. Call it the form of the unformed, the image of no image. And I, I really kind of like, see a lot of how she she uses and I'm, I, I i mentioned this before but she uses a very sartrean kind of formula to to resolve that paradox by containing nothingness within being and and showing how like if if it is unformed then there has to be it's unformed nature gives it a character through being named unformed that, that then has qualities that can be described and so those paradoxes kind of get resolved into, um, and I'm going to be I'm going to be um, a little controversial here, and and into on, on almost kind of an imminent uh, arising, you know, uh, because because ultimately nothing this can't quite win when when it is itself sharing and being. Right. Yeah. Although you don't get to be without having it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Only in dying life. I mean, they're not mm-hmm. held as opposites or, or things mm-hmm. even in conflict with each other. They're things that that are, I want to say, mutually coextensive. They 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 call yeah. each other into being. They don't exist without each other. Yes, right. There's a sense that Ged, in, uh, I the one thing I will re- I remember differently from my first reading and my second reading was the end. It's this beautiful, beautiful moment where. Ged and Vetch are sailing far into the East Reach past Astowell, which is the last land. And they're going and going and going. And finally, they see, Ged sees the shadow or some sort of a, a shape in the distance. And they feel like they run aground on a sandbar, which ends up being some sort of like, almost like a, again, like a dry land, like a desert. This sort of wet, dry metaphor comes back. And Ged gets out of the boat and walks. And what we are led, or what we find out later is that it's always been, it either is, it's been both. <laughs> it is both the desert and it's not because then Vetch tries it and he falls into the ocean. But you um, can't walk on water. You can't walk on water, <laughs> but you can walk on land. And he, he goes and he meets the shadow head on. And it's, it's not anticlimactic, but it's not the 50 page, uh, you know, uh, sort of Tolkien esque battle on the Return of the King type thing that you're looking for, right? It's, it's just a couple pages. He walks up to it. It's there. They say the same name at the same time, which is Ged. And then that's it. And part of it, to me, when I read that, I was like, oh, that, that's what's most radical about this book. To, to borrow, to be more on the, on the Gifford side of things here, to, to borrow your reading, is that there is no, there's no winning. He didn't win, right? And he didn't lose. To me, at the end of this book, when Ged says his name and the shadow says his true name at the same time, which is also, I would say, the shadow's true name. This is what that is. All he's done, and at this point, he's 19, right? So that's, I think that's about, about right. Yeah. 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 He just knows he's going to die. Uh, and he, I think, or it's the acceptance of death to me, or it's the recognition that it's there and it's always going to be there and that you're, it's just going to seamlessly move through that. What is it that Nabokov said that at the very beginning of Speak Memory, that life is just a brief uh, crack of light between two infinite darknesses, something like that, right? That's the way I view that, is that he's just, he, he might have always known it as, and you can give me the Sartre and Heideggerian background on this, Simon. He's known it as a fact, but he's not actually internalized it as, experience that will be lived at some point 
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Um, so I think, I mean, for Sarge, it, it often ends up coming down to freedom, right? And and one of the freedoms that a person has is ultimately the freedom of death. Um, you know that 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 you can you can choose that. No, I don't want this anymore. Um, but getting to the point, uh, I mean, that's terrifying too, though. Getting mm-hmm. to the point of understanding that 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 sort of that, that there exists within you this part that is not only its own negation, but possibly even the desire to ward its own negation, and and kind of integrating that. Um, it it's complicated psychological work. It's that's uh, someone was just saying recently to me that they have this they've had this urge sometimes to just like they're standing on a bridge to push the person next to them not out of maliciousness but just to see what would happen or to jump off themselves and i was like oh there's a lot of stuff going on behind that urge you have there right <laughs> Ralph Skolnikov case yeah to say nothing <laughs> of, of the dostoevsky or the freudian reading or the nietzschean reading or mm-hmm. or you know uh the the, the camus reading or the, whatever you know there's all kinds of different ways you could you could you could read that um i was like maybe maybe keep that under your hat for a while keep that <laughs> urge under your hat <laughs> but but it's important to recognize it because you ged has that in a in a yes. way um he's terrified which allows him to he's miserable in those in those in that span from when he leaves roke until he, I don't know, what would you say? Until he, um, until Ogion has to convert him out of hawk form back into a human. And he has that return to home. Three days, he's on a pallet, recharging, and then able to face what the task ahead of him is. If I were to think of what Simon was saying about it, um... I mean, what fascinates me with Le Guin and going back to the prose style is that it is all of those things. We, we know that she was very well read. Um, I've been waiting for quite a while to get down to uh, Oregon and dig into the libraries and uh, hopefully find one of her libraries, <laughs> perhaps uh, donated in Eugene. But um, it's, it's a radical book. It's a, there's a political radicalism in saying that you don't resolve uh, the complexities of life through recourse to combat or war or through the destruction of evil or the killing of that which you're projecting your own darkness onto. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can read from that into post-colonial approaches to the book where she's, she's wanting to set forward a, uh, a vision of race that is different in this book from what is right. prevalent for its time period. But it's also the philosophical approach uh, that Simon's been been stressing through, um, you know, primarily through a Heideggerian lens. Um, but there's a radicalism to it too. If we were to say, well, what's going on in terms of this is 1968? Right. What visions of utopia are surrounding her at the moment? And and you know, we know later from her ambiguous utopia, the dispossessed, there is no utopia. Uh, mm-hmm. The pursuit of utopia may itself be the destruction of utopia, or maybe the the killing of the better. Um, all of those things get bundled together. So it's not just one of these things in that problem uh, where he confronts his, his Gebeth, his, his shadow self, all of these things. It's not just a, a Jungian uh, anima animus. Uh, it's, it's rolling. What a reductive a, a, reading of that. Too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's all of these things rolled in together. And, and what's brilliant is the simplicity of the prose makes you confront the fact that she can do three things at once or four or five. And she must've been an amazing juggler. Uh, now, do you think maybe we should mention about exactly what the significance is of 1968, especially with the context of radical politics? What is it about 1968 that's so crucial that would be reflective in The Wizard of Earthsea? Well, I mean, in radical politics, there was like a huge amount of tumult, especially in Europe. Um, there was a major, uh, effectively a failed revolution um, in France. Um, Similarly, uh, we got the inauguration of the Years of Lead, which was a terrible period of political violence in Italy um, that kind of kicked off around the same time. And, and so we see in radical politics also um, between these failed revolutions and, and the, the reconsideration of the Soviet Union that was underpinning a lot of the conflicts at the center of this, we see 
huge shifts in Marxist thought and anarchist thought going on throughout the academy at that time, um, as well as on the streets, and 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 Le Guin being very enmeshed in radical politics and also in the academy had to be very much tapped into that. So I think we do want to look at A Wizard of Earthsea in the context of, of, of the political time that she was operating. We're talking about uh, student, mostly student-led revolutions, right? Yes. We're talking about um, the Herbert Marcuse's uh, One Dimensional Man sort of being the go-to book for a lot of people too. Um, James, you look like you're ready to to say something <laughs> um I, I, if i were to grab anything from one dimensional man for this book it would be the concept of repressive desublimation uh Do you want to give a quick little definition of that so people sure are... the, the the desublimation the the unrepression of say repressed libidinal desires or or what have you um is not itself necessarily a pathway to freedom or a freeing up of libidinal energy. It is also a tool uh, very really used for repression and control. Uh, so you might say for 1968, a thing coming from Marcuse would be, you know, you get more, more sex on TV, people are finally free, uh, or they are ever more constrained and controlled by the media manipulation of their desires. Uh, and this is a thing I'm talking about next week for Samuel Delaney. Um, <laughs> which is its own curious, interesting history in relation to Le Guin. Which book? Um, I, I'm talking about Navarian. Oh, okay. um, rumor has it he's he's registered to be in the audience. Ooh. You can edit that part out of the podcast. No, I'll leave that. That's awesome. I'm <laughs> That's cool. That's really cool. We the, shall so see. The idea there is that it's not just hedonism for hedonism's sake, because the idea there is, uh, you know, you think you're free when you're able to do something that you've always wanted to do, but who owns the channel? of where that is going, right? Who owns Precisely. the rails? If someone owns the rails of your hedonism, it's not your hedonism or it's not your libidinal freedom or whatever you want to call it. It's somebody else's calling the shots. You think that you know what your, what your, uh, what your libidinal unrepression is and where it's going, but in reality, you're contained. Right? You might not be able to see the walls yeah. of your container, but you're still contained, as it were. That's and, and some exactly of that it. Some of that's not even dependent on there being somebody pulling the strings outside, too. If you get into, uh, well, my one of my favorite responses <laughs> to uh, 1968 Anti-Oedipus, and, and, and you look at this, this, um, this structure of the unconscious where um, desire is always pushing toward a limit that it can never actually break, and there's a reactive element within desire that then pushes that desiring energy back away from the limit and so you simultaneously like within the mind of a given subject within a culture as well have this this double action of movement toward and pushing away from um the the object that is desired how do you see that operating in here <sighs> i mean again that a is, lot that of that is stuff a wizard of earthy <laughs> Death and the up. Death Drive is where I'd probably go again for this. Um, right. With, 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 like, Get doesn't want to die. But also he kind of does. Like, ever since he calls that ghost, he, he takes on risks constantly. He flirts with death constantly. Um, but at the same time, he does it often in the context of trying to save lives. Rescue well, a what's the first time, though, that he, what's the first time that he puts himself in, in, in harm's way, life or death? Is it's, the attack from the car god, car gods, uh, on his village, and he's he knows just enough weather working to mist over with fog his 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 town to allow the uh, townspeople to sort of hide away, and the the enemy, the blonde beasts, <laughs> come storming through, and they go basically right through the town. And don't even know that they're going through, and that's how he he saves them. But what um, but what happens is he's injured, I think, to some degree there, right? Uh, or something happens to him, and at the end, um, what I loved about that scene was uh, he wants the recognition for it, and so his father says, "How did that happen?" And he, he speaks up and he says, "I did that. I did that." And then the father, I think cuffs him on the head or something it's like don't you know don't be silly or don't be stupid or whatever but no he says no i did do it 
it was his first sort of moment where he stood up. Whereas in any other movie, like a Pixar version of this, he would have been quiet about it for the, for the rest of the first act, right? It would have been his great knowledge would have been hidden. And I thought, bullshit, right? And again, Simon's what you're talking about is this, she overturns this. He doesn't sit on it. He wants the recognition for it. And what I loved about it was that his father gets it. He doesn't, she doesn't decide to have that be a dramatic tension. She says, we're going to, I'm going to go with it, right? The, the father will understand that it's his son. And then they're going to go from there. And that's when Ogian enters the, the story and says, I'm going to take him, right? If he wants to come with me. And so then the, it's on basically. But I, again, you know, I think you're right. I think we, I should be giving more credit to this book for being not only politically, thematically radical, but formally radical. Uh, it, if it's always got 10 chapters, it seems pretty straightforward. There's a beginning, middle, and end. But I'd say in the way that she sets up things that we normally think of as like story beats, right? From a narrative point of view, she's just, she's discarded all that. I don't think she really cares about that so much. Um, I also love that there's no love story here other than the love between two, two men, Ged and Vetch, that there's a great friendship there that I think is really wonderful. There's no, um, I don't know. I'm, I would, I wonder what people think about that. What do you think? Am I getting that wrong? Do you think there's some sort of romantic story to be told there with, uh, towards the end, especially like in, when, when they're in his household? Yeah. With his sister. Yeah, I, can, I don't. I, can, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe a little. It doesn't need it. It's left though. ambiguous. It's left very ambiguous. There, Good. I'm glad. There's, there, there's definitely a domestic friction to mm. to those late scenes with Vetch, where they they take a break and they just kind of enjoy hanging out for a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know if if that's it. It, it, it just might be homosociality, right? Well, I think you can have. Uh, I was just, this has been referenced in other places. Um, you know, the, uh, was it Luca, the Pixar movie? I don't know if either of you have seen that. It's about a, like a sea creature boy who makes friends with the, another sea creature boy who learns how to live on land. And it's sort of like this, some people would say it's a, could be a homosocial story or it's a just good friendship story or it, it is, they are in love with each other. I don't know the, I don't know the way to read that. It doesn't bother me either way. I don't know. I like that. I like that. I don't know. You know what I mean? What do you think? I, I was thinking like the quintessence of homosociality for my thinking, uh, and this is going to be heavily influenced by Sedgwick, mm -hmm. is that we, we have that homosocial uh, element with, with women when the woman is essentially a vehicle of exchange between men. Um, you know, a wonderful colleague of mine, Carrie Shanafelt, will, has described this to students in her class by saying, uh, you know, there's, there's two guys who hang out with each other all semester. Uh, they're, you know, glued at the hip to each other and they're always checking out girls. And, you know, one says, hey, check, check her out. Isn't she hot? Uh, and looking at the girl is not about his relationship to the girl. It's the girl as the way for them to communicate with each other. And that's not what's happening, I think, between Ged and Vetch. Yeah. Um, the sister, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment. Um, is it Yero? Yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. Uh, she's present. She's, she seems to be an important part of this moment in the novel. There is the potential or the hint that there should be a romantic attachment, and yet there isn't. And she's not, used, she's not used as a vehicle of exchange between the two no. men. So I, I, I almost wonder to the extent all the things going on for a book about moments of change in people's lives, and she does describe it as a very masculine book and a very masculine economy, which is her later change to the series. Um, to what degree is this caught up in the other um, uh, dualisms that are becoming a monism in the book, if that's a way to put it, life and death or dark and light and what have you? Um, how is this strength and weakness strength and weakness yeah to what extent is the feminine present to say we don't need this to be in a binary as well women can be present in scenes 
there can be a potential or you might be hinted at as a reader, you should be wondering, is there going to be romance here? And the novel simply does not need to move in that direction, the same way it doesn't need to move to war, it doesn't need to move to combat. Um, love might be a flip side of combat, but it, it simply doesn't have to do that. This isn't what binaries need to necessarily lead to. The thing yeah. I, I I love I love that, and one of the things that I you you've brought up in my mind now that you've said that is the fact that I'm so trained, we're so trained to want to expect those things. I think that when I was even rereading the second time, I was thinking, "Is that I forgot? Is that going to happen? What's going to happen here?" And when it didn't, I was so happy because I thought that would be the, not the cheap way out, but it wouldn't do anything. Like to me, I, I, feel, I felt like if he fell in love with any of the female characters in the book, I don't see how that would have added anything to the book in a way. I, I just wouldn't have seen, it wouldn't have added anything. Whereas the relationship with Vetch though was something that I thought was, it's more unique to me and i don't think we really get a lot of say uh, friendship stories or stories where intense love between um two people that doesn't manifest in in a sexual way we yeah. don't really get that too much i don't think and again a book like this published then right already overturning all of these other types of um classical formal elements um, is is just it's again that's just another notch on the whole radical aspect of this book doing things that I didn't I had not realized until we actually were started talking and I was rereading it for the second time. This is your next read. Uh, you're you're looking at the little paperback of very far away from anywhere else. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I do. I have that. I I ordered that. I'm ready to. I'm ready for someone to come talk. If you're when you're listening to this, if you want to talk about that book with me, get a hold of me. It's a marvelous thing in that book that's exactly like Wizard of Earth where you you wonder there must be a romance. There's there's boy and girl. Boy must meet girl. They must they must fall in love, and they decide very strategically not to. And she has this marvelous moment where you get uh, a gesture towards Robert Graves' The White Goddess, which is of course wildly influencing fantasy in the 1960s. You could look to Henry Treese and uh, Lynette Roberts and others who, who are trying to bring forward this Gravesian White Goddess legacy as as the driving force of fantasy and Le Guin has none of it uh, she looks at this as being the most ridiculous and stupid thing you could possibly do um, and having spent a lot of time in Graves's archives I, I would kind of agree with her um, and to me that's that that's a radical thing in Earthsea where it's breaking from its genre and the things it attaches itself to in that moment uh, by by denying that binaries must be in conflict uh, whether it's love or war uh, but there might be another thing where they're mutually con constitutive or how would i pronounce that more britishly constitutive I'm constitutive sure. <laughs> constitutive thank you <laughs> don't let the american out pronounce you guys this is not how this is gonna work <laughs> uh why don't we uh simon do you want to respond to james well i i think i think james is right um i <laughs> I'm, I was picking at something, and he kind of found the direction to take the the the, the thread that I was pulling on. That's there. why we have these conversations. Um, but I, I think it is again kind of coming down to that that little bit of slice subversion going on there, where she is giving us something where we we expect to go one way, and then it it doesn't. Um, but that I I will admit that that's the part of the book that often confounds me the most, is is kind of placing that last kind of breath before they they really get to the end and 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 picking that apart that's that's still one that i i struggle with a little bit so um i might have to take another look at that with in light of what some of the, the james is saying the so what i was to say is that let's i want to shift from from this to perhaps what, what we're going to get in the second episode uh which i'll i'll just sort of go into. 